next installment of the SUS News podcast series, where we interview newsmakers and discuss the news and applications relevant to the global unmanned systems technology community. I'm your program host, as always, Patrick Egan, and let's say a hello and welcome to our co-host, Mr. Gene Robinson. Hello, Mr. Patrick. As usual, I had to dash in through the door from the field and throw myself down in front of the console for the big show, but I am here, and I made it. I know. Well, you know, that's funny you say that, because people, again, you know, I was, I was at an event uh, this week and uh, in Burbank, and people are like, oh, talking about experts, and I said, there's one guy, he's more of an expert than I am, and it's Gene Robinson. This guy's out in the field. <laughs> You know, flying this stuff. You're the you're the man, man. You know, I mean, uh, you're out there eating the dirt, uh, riding in the Argus. <laughs> you know, flying the plane. I was at the uh, DJI announcement of the Zen Muse XT. I think that is something that uh, you need to get your paws on one of those, pal. The uh, the flare camera for the fire. I have spent the week out in the field, as you say. We've been training with the red team and. Uh, um, Surprisingly enough, the red team uh, out of Austin has gotten their nighttime authorization from the Federal Aviation Administration. And uh, guess what we've been doing? It's been uh, been a lot of fun. And I got to tell you, the uh, Zen Muse XT was very timely. So uh, mm. I, I started. I, I had to start calling, you know, everybody that I knew, the the people in high places, and you know, you and and the really important people to see if I could get my hands on one of those things because that that is going to be the trick for uh, nighttime search and rescue, I think. Well, and, you know, people don't usually just get lost between 9 and 5, right? We've, we've talked about that before. Boy, well, they don't. Yeah, it's usually when you're in the deepest part of your sleep and having the best dream that the phone rings. <laughs> Uh, I just did you do dream about drones or what? That's what I no, I didn't say I was dreaming about drones. It was like no, we can't go there on the air, but uh it was a good dream. <laughs> oh, that's pretty funny. All right, well, you know, and I would usually ask you at this point we're gonna talk about news stories, but that's kind of the whole thing. Uh, well, the whole topic of this episode and uh we have two guests we we have uh, from unran unmanned risk uh terry miller and jonathan rupert from rupert law and we're going to bring them on and we're going to talk about registration from a couple of different uh angles and um so i think i'll start out with terry now terry you were on before we did a show before the uh recommendations came out when there were or, or let's say the faa's version of it came out. Could you please introduce yourself to the audience with a little bio and how you got involved in the unmanned aircraft sector? Yeah, thanks, Patrick. Hi, Gene. Uh, pleasure to be back here, as always. Uh, we're, uh, uh, my company is Transport Risk Management. We have, uh, we're, we're an aviation aerospace insurance specialist. That's all we do. We insure everything from, from uh, high-density seating 747s all the way down to uh, DJI Phantoms for all uses. We we got involved in the uh, unmanned industry about five years ago uh, because we're one of the largest insurers of aerial film production in the world. Our film production clients wanted to start using uh, unmanned aircraft. We thought that was a great idea from a safety standpoint, risk management standpoint. We just uh, had to find a way to insure them. So, 
we uh, we became involved with our aviation insurers. Back then, we had one carrier and uh, uh, you know, a maximum of about two million in limits. Today, we've got more than ten insurance companies with limits as high as five hundred million dollars. And it's uh, today we're insuring just over four thousand individual UAS for all uses uh, all over the world. Well, and uh, actually, that's kind of interesting. You know, our next guest, too, was in attendance. Uh, I was in Burbank last week for the Society of Aerial Cinematographers uh, show. And uh, man alive, uh, anybody that wants to get into TV or film should have been at that symposium. Uh, I mean, these guys are doing uh, major motion pictures. I think some of those people are you're insured. They talked about how, you know, they need $5 million worth of liability. I'm putting two and two together here, not just a pretty face, okay? And uh, they were talking about TVs and movie, TV and movies and kind of how to break into that industry. And we'll get into that a little bit more, but let me bring on the second guest, Jonathan Rubric, Rubric Law. Could you please introduce yourself and give us a little bio and how you got involved with the shiny flying machines? <laughs> Thank you so much for having me, Patrick. My background is I built a model aircraft out of balsa wood when I was 16. Didn't do too much until I was uh, I was 18. I started uh, flying, and then I became a commercial pilot, flight instructor, graduated Emory-Riddle Aeronautical University, wrote a book on drone law, graduated law school, published a book on uh, – uh, a co-authored a chapter on unmanned uh, unmanned aircraft specifically that's a rulemaking process for the American Bar Association and I currently help individuals with exemptions I filed 46 unique ones so far and help people with airspace waivers for like uh, Delta and Charlie airports so that's what I do excellent and uh, you know so, so we're still on the Society of Aerial Cinematographers thing you want to give uh, folks quick impression of what you thought of that 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 get-together uh, I was very impressed uh, with that event. It was much more of a higher level of conversation about, uh, you know, how to actually go about doing business because many individuals are actually getting into this area and they're, they're still pretty newbie uh, at the whole situation. These guys have already been, most of them have been in operation for one to two years full time and they have some real great experience uh, in that area. And just, just hearing the practical uh, tips on how to handle, let's say, a, a difficult a uh, director who wants to have you get a certain type of shot that is dangerous. I mean, it was it blew my mind that that, that the practical tip that he gave was that well, tell the guy, hey, uh, the shot that you want to get is actually very dangerous, and we should try to take do all the non-dangerous shots first because we don't want to you know crash the bird and have that downtime. We want to get all these 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 upfront shots done first. And then you make sure you take a really, really long time to get those done. And by the time the end of the day rolls around, either, you know, you ran out of light or the shots you did have that you got that weren't as dangerous are good enough for the director. And you don't have to risk doing those uh, dangerous uh, scenes. And so it was very just practical know-how based upon people's years of experience operating in the area. Right. That was, and that's a good summation of what that gentleman said, which was very good. Uh, he said, you know, too, that most directors are happy with what they got in the can during the day, and you don't even have to do that shot. And that's, that goes back to when I talk about going to these uh, shows where it's professionals that are actually making money in the field, and it's not conjecture or theory. I mean, I hear tons of theory, and theory is great, or go see the, the Phantom or other drone fly in the net. 
But uh, this stuff, I mean, if you want to get into that field, these guys gave away thousands and thousands of dollars worth of uh, good advice. So I didn't go to the other show in L.A., but I did go to that show. And, man, I learned a lot of stuff. Um, I want to do more with those guys. And hopefully we'll have some of those guys come up and speak at this year's Small Unmanned Systems Business Expo and share some of their knowledge. Okay, so we, we kind of discussed that. I, w- I want to talk, I want to get, you know, two different views. One of them, I'm going to get, we're, we're going to get Terry from the insurance side, and then we're also going to get, you know, uh, some, some legal thinking on this. And I, and, and, and I just want to get, you know, we'll, go, we'll start with Terry. Terry, what came out? What are the questions that it raises for you on this, on this drone registration? Uh, you know, I, I, first of all, we, we, we do have a rule on the books. We already had, uh, and continue to, to, to have a registration rule on the books under, under the current, you know, uh, part 47 of the FARs. And it's something that we've always had to do in the in the insurance industry because we have to identify each aircraft that we're insuring anyway. So it's something that we had to identify, make sure it existed, and assign a number and and understand what we're insuring. Now with the new rule, the real uh, you know the things that catch my attention are are that it's not that you're not registering a UAS, and and there are a lot of. Uh, uh, inconsistencies. So, his, for example, your they call it UAS registration, but it's really UAS owner registration. Uh, you don't have to actually own a UAS to register. That you don't provide any UAS information. You send them your five dollars. They give you a number. Then they send you your five dollars back. Uh, but then if you look at the Q&A on the FAA's website for UAS registration, uh, number 24 under the questions, uh, what happens if I sell my drone? You should log into the registration website and update your registration information. Uh, now, how does the drone play into it? Under the current rules, you've only registered your name and address. And then we've got the citizenship uh, requirements. Uh, you know, so so there's a number of number of areas here that that come into play that I think are inconsistent. Um, I think it's a misnomer to call it drone registration or UAS registration. It's actually UAS owner registration, and uh, and and. And then the registration itself, assigning a number, is not visible. You can put it into a, in the battery compartment. You can put it any place on the drone that doesn't require tools to view it. So in that case, it's not a safety measure. It's a it's a it, it's a it's a proactive enforcement or reactive enforcement measure. Uh, I'm like like Jonathan. I'm a uh, Embry Riddle graduate myself, and with a with a degree in aviation safety and accident investigation. And I, you know, when when you look at this from a safety standpoint, it's you know the goal is to avoid those accidents happening and learning from past past accidents and incidents and learn how to avoid them in the future. Just putting a number that's not visible is is not going to prevent any of that. It's not a preventative measure. So those are the most glaring issues that I see from an insurance standpoint. We still have to assign numbers. The reality of the fact is that 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 uh, uh, bad actors or, or unprofessional operators don't buy insurance. The ones mm-hmm. that do buy insurance operate professionally, safely, and we see very, very excellent loss ratios and accident uh, history. So, 
it, it is, uh, uh, you know, I think there are better ways of handling it. Um, if, if safety is, is actually the goal, um, if it's just to identify after the fact, then, you know, this meets that goal. So it just depends on what the goal is, I guess. Well, and let me just ask you a question. Now, you already had, we talked about that. You have your own numbering system and registration system. With what the FAA is proposing, if you're registering operators, so I'm not getting a new number for every aircraft, right? This this is, right. this kind of runs counter to what you're doing. You're you're trying to let's say identify the aircraft and and hook it to an owner pilot. They're just trying to hook a pilot to whatever. So your 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 uh, let's say traditional method wouldn't wouldn't dovetail with this, or would it dovetail with this? Uh, it would, would would work perfectly because we we perform all of the same functions that the FAA does. One, safety is very important to the insurance industry. Safety translates into profitability. Insurance is 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 a business, a for profit business. The safer it is, the more profitable it is. So, uh, so safety safety is our is our is our goal initially. Second, we have to know what we're insuring, uh, even on home home built aircraft. So we require that all of our insureds provide us with uh, with records, proof of ownership, uh, proof that it exists, and 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 what the aircraft is is built out of. We assign a number to that aircraft, and that's what we're insuring. In turn, we're insuring for liability arising from the operation of that aircraft. Now, if you go to work in the film industry, uh, production company is going to want to to understand that the aircraft you're using is actually insured under the policy. So you have to show a specific number. In turn, if we have a loss, we want to be able to verify that that number is is in fact the aircraft that that we're insuring and that it's owned and there's insurable interest, you know, by the by the by the party that's insuring the aircraft. Again, uh, the the our our numbering system, our registration system. Can, can track that back to the aircraft, can, can confirm ownership, and in the event of loss, it provides a number and a means to identify the operator. So all of that is in place, and it comes down to the it's to the individual aircraft. It's the only way we can do it in insurance. And and the goals, I mean, all of the, those purposes, all the uses of it are exactly what the FAA's uses are. Number one is, is to underwrite it or try to determine whether it's a safe and insurable operator and and uh, try to determine how they're operating and hopefully they operate within the terms that they represented to us. Number two is to be able to identify the aircraft and the owner to confirm ownership and in the event of loss to be able to determine, you know, again, ownership, liability, and how how do we prevent it in the future. Right, right. Now, Jonathan, what are your thoughts on, on what the FAA put out? I thought that it was a great idea for registering aircraft. However, the big problem is is that there's understood the whole the hidden, I guess, part of it is that now this dormant regulation, 91203 and, you know, Title, and also Part 47, 
is now being activated to apply to model aircraft when it was never applied to them before. So the commercial guys do, under the 333 have never had any problems with this. They're just registering their drones. It'll make life easier for them under Part 48 uh, instead of doing Part 47. But now we have, have this on the table, and the FAA is it, it, they're marketing it as that Part 48 is an alternative to Part 47 then, you know, there, we aren't actually creating any rules here or anything. So if you, when, you, when you play that out, well, what happens if Part 48 actually gets shut down later on uh, with a judicial, you know, there's a court um, that strikes it down. Well, then does that mean you're going to now force everybody who is a model aircraft flyer to actually register under Part 47, which is the paper process, which is very difficult and annoying? So that that's kind of the whole hidden behind the scenes what's going on and then up front there is a uh, there's a big hurdle that they have to overcome regarding the violation of section 336 of the FAA Modernization Reform Act of 2012 which prohibits the FAA from creating specifically promulgating any rule or regulation and so it boils down to the word any. What does any mean? And uh, recently in an analysis I did, I, go, I went into the word any in the many Supreme Court cases that have been litigated just on that word alone uh, with federal agencies. And generally it is that unless context indicates otherwise, any is to mean the broadest scope uh, of, of that type of classification or whatever it is. So there's the whole Section 336 uh, a violation. Then there, the FAA is also required to, under the Administrative Procedures Act, is required to do notice and comment. The only way to bypass that is if they have good cause. So there's only three ways to get the good cause exception. One, it's impracticable, meaning it's like an emergency. We need to immediately do it and get it under control. Two, it's unnecessary, like nobody would contest it. Or three, it's against the public interest, which is where the uh, public would actually be benefited more by just getting it done uh, than actually out in the open, where just the fact that that's being discussed could damage the public in some way. Uh, and it would, the public would be benefited by uh, knowing about that. So those are the three exceptions, and the FAA is arguing that they have good cause. You know, it's impractical to wait any longer. We have tons of drones flying in. That it's unnecessary. That the three that this registration process is so easy that people won't fight back, and that it's against the public interest. That it that people could be harmed, um, and that that's generally the overall. Uh, you know, they're real. I don't believe that they have a good cause exception, and I also uh, believe that this is a violation of Section 336 of the FMRA. Right. Well, and that's a slippery slope thing because, really, you know, this has been going on for almost 24 years. If they have good cause, they knew the numbers. They've known what's out there. They know, they've known what was going on, and there'd be good cause to do the small rule. You know um, exactly exactly think. if they if they do one for this, then they must the logical thing to do is also to immediately implement the small rule as well exactly well, now you know I'm gonna get into the conjecture part of it, and I'm gonna get into a little bit of community feedback, and I'm sure you guys are hearing feedback too i I had issues with the task force from day one. You know, we supposedly have this big problem with near misses or sightings or, you know, they've been, uh, let's say, uh, the nomenclature that's been used 
for this has been all over the place. And one of the first times that this was was mentioned was at the small U or the small unmanned business uh, small unmanned systems business expo. Jim Williams got up there, and there was an incident in Florida. Oh, you know, somebody saw an F four Phantom. Uh, they didn't know what it was. It was camo. If it was. There, there was really no investigation, but he made that statement, and that news went worldwide, you know, that there was this near miss. Nobody knew what it was. They didn't know if it was a, it was a military aircraft being flown around as a, you know, for, for uh, training or whatever else. But anyway, my point with that is, is they're going to go into this, this, this task force meeting with no data. I've been saying, show me the data. There's a process in place for near misses. Is it a hazard? Does it constitute a hazard? Let's see the data. That's my, my first thing. If you're going to say that there's, a, there's an issue, a safety issue, let's see that data. Then when the thing gets rolling and they get that, that, that report by MITRE, uh, Andy Latcher did, you know, and, and, you know, I'm not saying that Andy's a bad guy, but it's, you know, now we're talking about uh, 250 grams. We're talking about uh, shrapnel and projectiles from explosions. I thought we were talking about safety of the NAS now, about, you know, trying to stop these incursions at airports. And now we've done a little bit of a change and we're worried about people on the ground. Uh, there were a few other things that, that happened during that uh, the task force proceedings that uh, people were not happy with. But uh, let's say the after effect is I'm hearing, you know, the 336 argument that, wait a minute, you know, uh, you're not supposed to make any rules. This looks like a rule against the hobby. People are very uh, concerned about the impact this is going to make to the hobby. They're also, you know, now uh, the AMA is talking about uh, litigation, and but, uh, you know, one of the things I said was all the money that they're going to spend on this, how many kids are going to be denied the exposure to, to a wholesome and safe hobby? There, there's a lot of things to think about. And I'm going to throw it to Gene first. Gene, you know, have you heard any feedback or have you just been in the wilds there and you, and you haven't well, talked to anybody? The, the the first thing I want to mention is that even though the AMA is considering litigation, I think somebody on this phone call tried that once with the FAA, and uh, we know how all that turned out. And you're right. They're going to spend a lot of money. Um, you know, as long as you're 12 years old, you, you're golden, right? You don't have to register. You know, you, you're, you're good. Uh, I read through – I was even though I was in the field, I downloaded the PDF, read the entire thing, you know, top to bottom, well, I wasn't being a pick, and uh, you know there there were a lot of the things that you guys were mentioned jump out at me, but uh, uh, the the one that I seem to identify the most with is that they are registering an activity mm-hmm. rather than than the aircraft. So no matter what happens is if if somebody takes your aircraft or even gets your number or anything else, they can go out and fly it, and there's going to be MIB knocking at your door if something happens. And say, you know, we understand you're our drone pilot. Excuse me, drone pilot. Uh, and we have uh, this uh, this number that was uh, on this this thing, and we want to talk to you about it. So I'm a little, you know, that that's that's. Um, I understand that they needed to make a swipe at something, and uh, they're they. I think they expected they were going to get a lot of feedback on this thing both ways. Not, I, I think the legal guys probably have more cloud in this thing than, than we do as the, the, the poor morons that are out here trying to use it. So I think that uh, the, the legal guys are doing their job, just like uh, uh, the guy, our guests on today. They got it. They got it. 
and uh, we need to move forward with it. The insurance industry is going to drive it, and the legal industry is going to drive it. I, I would concur with that. I think that the one other you know note is uh, there is concern from uh, people that that sell these, uh, let's say retailers and even some companies that this this uh, scheme that the FAA has come up with is going to impact sales in the negative for the Christmas season. And there are a couple of companies that are, uh, from what I hear, there's, there's things rolling out there. They're not selling as, uh, you know, as this run up to Christmas is, they're not selling now like they thought they were. And it could be uh, trouble for some of these companies that have gotten VC funding. We'll have to see the how that Grinch shakes that out. stole the drone Christmas. I think so. Somebody's heart was three sizes too small. And uh, we'll let people deduce what what agency that is. Terry, anything anything um, glaring stand out of the proceedings for you? You know, we're 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 nothing has really changed for us. You know, it just it just hasn't. We have to we have to keep operating the same way we are. Uh, it's uh, whether it's a question that'll be asked or required, you know, that 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 you're registered in order to insure a drone. We'll, you know, we'll uh, we'll see how that works with our underwriters. But but by and large, it 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 just doesn't it just doesn't change anything. And again, I think uh, the people that we see, uh, the people that we work with, the operators we work with, are by and large concerned about liability. They're concerned about operating safely, professionally. And I think that's the majority of the field anyway. Uh, so I think, you know, education is important, and you know, that's what we're dealing with. So it's, uh, you know, I agree with Gene and Jonathan here. I think we all see it the same way. Uh, it's just from the insurance industry standpoint, we, we still have to keep doing what we've always been doing. So we, we kind of take it as it comes. Well, no, I like how you agreed with everyone but me. Is that kind of insulating yourself? <laughs> well, Patrick, Patrick, I've, I've learned that that just makes my life easier as I move through it. <laughs> <laughs> but but, but we all true. appreciate you being here. Thank you for that. I you know that affirmation. I appreciate that. Jonathan, <laughs> uh, what uh, anything stick out or uh, like a sore thumb on on any of the proceedings for you that you'd like to discuss? Or highlight, or are you insulating yourself too? Uh, no, I, I, I'm, I'm fine. I mean, I hung out with you the other day, so yeah, I'm, I'm I have thick skin, <laughs> so I'm cool. Um, so, uh, so the, I would say that the FAA trying to, to just, I know, it's kind of like they cobbled together lots and lots of facts and then threw them together, spaghetti at the wall style to see what sticks, because I just have to get one of those to stick to get the good cause exception, impracticability, unnecessary, or it's contrary to the public interest. And so they just threw a lot of the stuff at it, and it, a lot of the stuff didn't even really make full, you know, a lot of sense. Like, why would that actually be an emergency, or why would anybody contest that? So, for instance, like the unnecessary um, part of the good cause exception, the, the idea is that nobody would contest that. However, the commercial guys, I mean, the commercial guys are going to be happy with this. The model aircraft guys are going to go crazy, and 99% of them are going to be totally against it. So I don't even know why they made that 
argument even, it, other than it's kind of like, we'll throw it at the wall. It's probably not going to stick, but maybe in the overall scheme of things, people aren't going to read too closely because we stuck an extra 10, 20 pages of you know, stuff in there. You know, and then you also have the uh, impracticability. Well, the FAA has known about this stuff since, I mean, the earliest, I guess, report that's gone around about some estimated numbers would be the, uh, in March 2013, the AUVSI report, which estimated 100,000 commercial units hitting uh, national airspace per year. Then you had data coming in from 2014, 2015, and now it's an, oh, all of a sudden we need to have an emergency here. Uh, the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals, in a, in a case back in the 90s, struck down an FAA uh, enforcement action against uh, – um, it struck down the enforcement action, and it got into, like, kind of talking about it and saying, hey, we're not going to actually question the FAA's reason for not doing stuff. However, the lack of inactivity cannot be then later on used as a justification for the impracticability, you know, because it's public policy-wise, uh, it's bad to really allow this, it, it, only unless you have, you know, like extreme emergency type of situations, because what an agency can do is just sit on it long enough time and then all of a sudden say, eh, okay, it's about, it's about a day about a day from now we need to have something done oh it's an emergency we only have a day now let's let's we got an emergency practicability good cause let's bypass the whole thing so uh, public policy um this is just a bad way to go and i think a court um should should strike it down and even the facts that they mentioned uh didn't really uh match up the the facts i mean ama has already gone in depth in analyzing the sightings you know how many of these sightings were actually in places that individuals were not allowed to fly or flying contrary to what the FAA has said. So if you look at 9157A, it's mere notification of the airport manager and the airport tower if there is one. So you can fly near uh, airports. However, that violates, you know, certain regulations. But the FAA doesn't clarify that. Everyone just is under the misunderstanding that drones cannot be flying, flown near airports, period. So you have this overinflated number of sightings of drones that could be possibly legally all flying where they, they, uh, they are. Uh, and then with all those those facts, um, you have these. I, I wouldn't want to call them emotionally inflammatory stories, but the firefighting, uh, the two stories that they mentioned about the tankers having to drop the uh, their loads and wasting taxpayer dollars, how many you know thousands of dollars? How would drone registration whatsoever actually affect that? Because they never actually captured those two drones. Okay, so you would have to actually get them for this to be done. So why were, why were these facts put in there? These facts actually don't justify anything. It's just like, why, why'd you do this? And out of uh, four out of those seven stories, they actually figured out the guy's identity without the drone registration process. And only one of those stories with the drone registration uh, process that actually helped out and actually apprehending the guy who got away when his drone crashed into the power lines in Hollywood. So I, I don't know what the point of the facts were other than it just kind of was like, you know, throwing spaghetti at the wall, throw it at the wall, pile it up deeper and higher, let's see what happens. Well, I wouldn't even, uh, you know, I think it's a stretch personally. I, I, I don't, I think it was hastily thrown together. You will notice that I did not, I did not try and get on that uh, task force because I smelt a uh, setup coming. I've been down that road before. It's not that I have a crystal ball. I just, during the uh, small UAS arc, I got the, the same MITRE report, and it was a bunch of crap. Now, I, I was a lot more vocal about it. I would say even personally in, in this task force, uh, when I saw I, – I would there's no way I would have went for the MITRE report. There, there's just no way. I mean, you know, again, I, I, you know, I did tweet out that I guess Walmart didn't send an engineer. 
But if I tried to, if we, if we're talking about different materials, if you're talking about 250 grams of steel, yes, oof, that's bad. 250 grams of packing peanuts, going to be hard to do a, a bodily injury with that, even at, at high speeds. So, you know, we, we have to look at this thing, stand back and take a, a holistic view of this thing. I've been talking about doing, you know, some science-based uh, risk analysis uh, for a couple of years. The industry still doesn't want to put up any money to do that. Hopefully, uh, we can we can find some money and do this so we know what the risk is before we start going along with these type of draconian measures. I will say that I'm a little disappointed, um, you know, that they didn't stand with the AMA. I really don't. I mean, this other fact that came out that the AMA tried to put in it a, a, some dissent and the FAA said no does not really uh, – it doesn't give me a warm fuzzy. I'm not feeling – like this is a public rulemaking process. And I think that the other participants, in my opinion, the other participants should have stood in solidarity with the AMA. Those are some of their customers. And, and you know, that's my opinion on it. I don't know. Anybody have an opinion they'd like to throw in there or they want to stay wide burst on that one? I will take that as a no, but um, all right. Well, we we ran through an hour or a half an hour, and I think we got a lot of good insights from you guys, from especially industry insights from uh, end user insurance, and then also some uh, some legal thought on this. I'd like to thank you guys for being on, and I would like to wish you all a happy holidays, Gene. If I don't talk to you before the holidays, Merry Christmas and whatever else. Absolutely, Merry Christmas to you and yours, and to all of our listeners out there. It's the uh, high holy days here in uh, uh, Texas, so I'm about to go out into the, the deer blind. I'll see you guys later. <laughs> okay, dude. Thank you, Terry, for being here. Thank you. Hey, thanks for having us, Patrick. Anything, uh, always happy to be here. We appreciate the opportunity. Happy holidays. Thank you, and thanks for the insight. Jonathan, thank you for being on, and thank you for uh, not letting out all of my, my secrets. I know you were you were having some fun laughing <laughs> at, at the Soka event. <laughs> but we had talked about uh, that before we went on air that, uh, you know, you wouldn't make too much fun of me and my, my herbal tea drinking and whatnot. But, well, I mean, I, uh, I'm i an attorney, so people tell me all sorts of things, and I kind of have to keep that a secret, even though I would love to tell everybody, but I have to keep quiet, so... <laughs> <laughs> That's a good thing for me because I can see the emails rolling in now and the ha ha ha's and the theories and all the rest of that. <laughs> but uh, thanks again for being on, and uh, I look forward to talking to all of you guys in the future. Have a good week. Adios, bud. Bye. Goodbye.